You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we talked about the first leg of Francis Drake's most famous voyage. That period took him from Plymouth in England, south to Africa and to the Canary Islands, east across the Atlantic Ocean, to the western coast of Brazil, down that coast further south, until he had reached almost the tip of South America. If everything had gone according to plan, this would have been a relatively unremarkable period of the voyage. However, due to some of the egos on board and the clashing ideologies of some of the men, there was nearly a mutiny led by a man named Thomas Doughty that Francis Drake eventually had executed. This left Francis Drake with three ships, the Pelican, the Elizabeth, and the Marigold. Sailing just a few days south, Francis Drake found the fleet at what's known as the Cape of Virgins. The Cape of Virgins was a place that was peaceful, beautiful, cold, and eerily quiet. For the men on board, according to some of the journals, it was a solemn time, a time for reflection. Francis Drake also, reportedly, held a ceremony that changed the name of his ship, the Pelican, to the Golden Hind. For two days, the men waited for the winds to pick up and carry them towards the Strait of Magellan, the easiest way for them to cross the continent of South America. They were two days of peace and calm reflection. The men were able to recuperate and rest. For some of the men, these two days of calm would be the last days of calm that they would see for many months. And for still others, it would be the last days of calm that they would see for the rest of their lives. This is episode number 10, Master Thief of the Unknown World, part 2. Before we continue with the voyage, I'd like to point out a couple of things about this period in history and the records that we have. This was a voyage that was clouded in secrecy. By design, Francis Drake was ordered by Queen Elizabeth not to keep the best of records about everything that he was doing. Many of these things were secret even to her closest council members in England, so she didn't want any record of them existing. Beyond that, the records that Francis Drake did keep are usually fairly questionable. Francis Drake was a man who was... Well, he was a master tactician, not just on sea, but he was a master of court politics as well. He was a man who could turn even the worst of disasters into a potential success. He had so many great achievements in his career that they always overshadowed the losses. And when things got too bad to be overshadowed, he always managed to find a scapegoat whose fault it truly was. There are some historians that believe that Thomas Doughty was not, in fact, the villain that Francis Drake made him out to be. He was merely a man that disagreed with many of Francis Drake's plans. And if all that failed, if Francis Drake was unable to achieve what he had planned, well, he could always turn to propaganda, something that he was extremely skilled in using. He was able to, years later, rewrite the histories in England in ways that would favor him politically. I mention this because so much of what we're going to be talking about this week, well, there are conflicts within it. Sometimes the accounts of sailors on board will conflict with the accounts of other sailors. More often, accounts of sailors on this voyage will conflict with accounts that they made later in life, when they conflict with the accounts of Francis Drake, who it became politically expedient to agree with. So to paint the clearest picture of what happens, we have to take the initial primary accounts, the journals of these sailors on board, compare them to the later accounts of Francis Drake and other men on this voyage, and then compare those with the accounts and records kept by the Spanish officials, which really are the best accounts of the most trustworthy information we have. For example, the name of the pelican was reportedly changed to the Golden Hind. This was something that was supposedly done to heal some of the wounds created by the execution of Thomas Doughty. But if that's the case, why do none of the sailors on board this Golden Hind seem to know that that's the name of the ship? 
From all of the accounts and the journals of the sailors on board, after they reportedly changed the name of the ship, they still call it the Pelican. Now, this might be just a force of habit, but you'd think some of them would have made mention of the ship's change of name, and none of them do. This presents us with two possibilities. First of all, that Francis Drake did change the name, but not in a massive ceremony that many of the men were aware of. It was more something for him and the officers. But more likely, Francis Drake didn't change the name at all. Not, at least, in the lifetime of either Francis Drake or Queen Elizabeth. See, the pelican was a symbol that Queen Elizabeth had adopted to show her love for the English people and her right to be the head of the English church. It was something that was a very big deal to her, so it seems strange that Francis Drake would have changed it. And really, the first written account that we have of the name of the Golden Hind doesn't come until 1592. And the author even feels the need to clarify that when he's discussing the Golden Hind, he means the ship the pelican. It was another 50 years before we see the name The Golden Hind appearing in written form again. And this was from a work that reportedly was trying to turn Francis Drake from, quote, a real man into a national legend, end quote. Now I'm going to call the ship The Golden Hind because that's what history accepts it as. And really, the name of the ship is inconsequential, but it points to that larger problem. The histories of this time, while we have a lot of documentation, aren't always exactly the clearest picture of what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. To really fill that in, and to really paint a fun picture and a clear narrative, sometimes you have to wade into the waters of myth. So beware of that from here on out. After three days of waiting, the wind finally picked up and pushed the fleet towards the Strait of Magellan, but almost immediately we run into these conflicts in the accounts once again. The Fletcher Manuscript, one of the primary documents about this voyage, records this event, quote, Within small time, continuing our way, we chanced with three islands a little distance from another, at two whereof we arrived and gave the names of all of them. The first we named Elizabeth, the second Bartholomew, the day being called by this name, and the last George, his island according to the custom of our country, end quote. But then, from contemporary accounts, journals at the time, there are some differences. For example, quote, Captain Francis went sailing toward the strait, which was in 52 degrees. At the entrance he found three small islands. He landed on one and called it Elizabeth. Here there were many featherless birds which could not fly. End quote. And another account, quote, we came unto two islands named by Sir Francis Drake, the one Bartholomew Island, because he came thither on the saint's day, and the other Penguin Island, end quote. And another account by John Winter, quote, The twentieth day of this month, at night, we entered the strait, in the middest of whereof we found the island, where we found a certain sea fowl with which the island is most abundantly stored. Here we killed so many as served one hundred and forty men seven weeks, end quote. So the number of islands found differs. The names of the islands found differs. Sometimes the names of the island aren't discussed at all. The one thing that all of the accounts seem to agree upon is that Penguin is delicious. You see, that was actually probably the most important thing to the men at the time was that they found an island filled with delicious and easy-to-kill birds. It was only later, when it became a matter of politics, for them to say that they named the island after Elizabeth and St. George and St. Bartholomew to raise the patriotic fervor surrounding this voyage. You see, they had in front of them the Strait of Magellan. That's nearly 400 miles long. At times, it becomes dangerously narrow, and other times dangerously shallow. It's a maze of forks and dead ends that's nearly impossible to navigate without decent charts. At first, it's a fairly easy voyage, but then, at about 150 miles in, the current changes. The water begins to work against you. There are whirlpools and eddies that threaten to throw you off course. For most of this period, it's impossible to throw a gauge down to see how deep the water is because your rope will begin to fray. And then, you begin to lose sight of the horizon. On either side of you, mountains begin to tower above you with snow-capped peaks, and frigid winds begin to blow between them. Drake encountered this. At about the 150-mile point, a storm arose, pushing the ship backwards, and they had to fight for the rest of the passage to get through. It was freezing and difficult, and the men got almost no rest. It took a full 14 days for Francis Drake to make it through the Strait of Magellan. It had taken Magellan himself, however, 
37. Now you might ask yourself, why, if the Strait of Magellan is so dangerous, is it something that's used? It's located very far south, almost at the tip of South America, so why not just sail around? Well, the seas surrounding that southern cape of South America are nearly constantly assaulted by Arctic storms. The air is filled with fog and ice, and it's extremely difficult to find your way, which is exactly what Francis Drake and his ships encountered when they left the Strait of Magellan. No Englishman had ever been into the Pacific Ocean. They were working off charts that the Portuguese had. However, they had no Spanish charts, so no definitive information. The Portuguese charts first told them to head northwest, and that's what they did. It took them a full two days of seeing nothing but cold, icy blue sea before they decided to turn back and head toward the Strait of Magellan to try and find another way. That is when the fleet became hopelessly lost and turned around. At first, they accidentally re-entered the Strait of Magellan, which they didn't intend to do. And then, for weeks, they floundered in a constant rain and a fog. They had no sun to see by, and they even, for a period of time, witnessed a full solar eclipse. This must have seemed like something of a terrible omen. It appears that Drake even sailed very far south, so far south that he found the tip of South America and rounded it before realizing his mistake in turning back. This makes him the first European to do so. Somehow, miraculously, this tiny fleet managed to stay together through all of this. The three ships never got separated from one another. Until then, one night, the men on board the Pelican, or the Golden Hind, and the Elizabeth were awoken by what they recorded later as fearful cries. The 29 men aboard the Marigold were screaming for help. The men on board the other two ships, well, they stared into the darkness. They couldn't see the other ship, but they were facing where the horrific screams were coming from, until, suddenly, the night was silent again. When the sun rose the next morning, the Marigold was gone, nowhere to be seen. The two remaining ships, the Golden Hind, captained by Francis Drake, and the Elizabeth, captained by John Winter, decided to drop anchor and wait in a small bay. But Drake's ship, the Hind, due to the current and the tide, well, its anchor cable broke, and it lost its anchor and began to drift off into the ocean. When John Winter noticed this, he gave chase to the Golden Hind, and for two days he managed to keep the other ship in sight. However, then, on the third day, he lost sight of Drake's ship, so he decided to head into a harbor back at the mouth of the Strait of Magellan to wait for him. For two weeks, John Winter waited, but he had no sign of Francis Drake or the Golden Hind. So, the Elizabeth headed east, back through the Strait of Magellan, and back to England. This was the first news that Elizabeth, or anybody in London, had had of the voyage of Francis Drake. She learned of several of their misfortunes, of the execution of Thomas Doughty, but she also learned that Francis Drake had successfully made it into the Pacific Ocean, the first English captain to do so. What she didn't know was whether or not Francis Drake was still alive. In the years that followed, several men who claimed to have been aboard the Marigold, as well as men who were on a small pinnace in the fleet, and eight men who were marooned in the Strait of Magellan, well, they turned up in England, claiming to have been a part of this voyage. It's almost impossible for us to prove if these were actually who they claimed to be, but if they were, some questions arise. It's possible that these sailors were on the Marigold. And their screams were nothing more than a ruse so that they could escape the fleet and the reportedly tyrannical command of Francis Drake. If they convinced the rest of the fleet that the Marigold had been sunk, then it's possible that Francis Drake wouldn't follow them and try to rescue them. Now, the accounts of the Elizabeth, the other ship in the fleet that sailed back to England, those are conflicted as well. John Winter claimed that he wanted to wait for Francis Drake at an appointed meeting spot, but the men on board decided not to and took command, bringing the ship back to England. However, the men on board claimed that it was John Winter's plan all along, after becoming separated from Francis Drake, that they would sail immediately back to England. It appears that John Winter was believed because he was received warmly by Elizabeth and there was no retribution against him which there would have been had he been an actual deserter. However, we can't really know what happened on board. There are no records of it. But then there's even a third possibility. It's possible that Drake himself was actively trying to lose the rest of his fleet. You see, after becoming separated, 
John Winter waited in a harbor that he and Francis Drake had agreed upon as a meeting place should they become separated. And Francis Drake, sailing back north, sailed less than a day away from this meeting place. It would have taken him almost no time to go and see if John Winter was at this meeting place. But he sailed on and continued north to find the coast of Chile. So maybe he didn't want these other men on the voyage, men who had been troublesome for the voyage up till now, and realized that if it was just him and the most loyal men on this voyage that were aboard the Golden Hind, he would have less trouble. So Drake sailed directly north, after floundering around in the South Sea for weeks. It was desperate that he find some land that would have something to eat on it. You see, the men on board the hind hadn't had anything to eat except for seal and penguin meat for weeks and weeks, and they were all suffering from scurvy. Drake found the Chilean coast, finally, on November 25th, on what was known as the Island of Mocha. Now there they managed to collect food and water, they got more seal and more penguin meat, and they found an herb that Drake reportedly knew of that had medicinal properties. So they made a tea out of this herb, which, when they drank, did cure all but two of the men of scurvy who still succumbed to it. So finally, Francis Drake, along with his Portuguese pilot, De Silva, and the most loyal men on this voyage, had made it to the western coast of South America. De Silva had heard of this island that they found themselves on. It was relatively well known. It was near a town called La Imperial, which was near one of the most productive gold mines in South America. Now, this was a region where the Spanish harvested slaves from all along the coast, from the native tribes. However, this island, the Spanish didn't touch. This island was called Tierra de Guerra, translated into English, the Island of War. These natives were extremely hostile to the Spanish, and they didn't see any difference between the white Spanish and the white English that had landed there. De Silva attempted to warn Drake, but it was already too late. The natives attacked, killing several of the Englishmen, including, unfortunately for those who had been injured, the ship's surgeon. So they had nobody on board who had any real medical knowledge, and Drake himself had been hit with two arrows, one in the hand and one just above his eye. As they got in the boats and tried to row away, some of the natives grabbed the oars and killed yet more Englishmen with the oars themselves before the English were able to escape. This taught a couple of important lessons to Francis Drake. First, he learned exactly how the natives in the region felt about the Spanish and Europeans in general, and realized that he was going to have to be very careful in his dealings with them. But he also learned where he was, and how close he was to some of the most productive gold and silver mines in all of the world. His men had just been through a battle, and he and his ship were in no way prepared to attack the harbor at La Imperial, where there was certain to be a lot of gold and silver, but they had no hope of taking it. So they retreated just a little further north to a very small harbor at a place called Quintero. It was a perfect pirate cove, the exact kind that you'd imagine from all of the stories. It was small, and it was secluded, difficult to see from the ocean. And only a few days away from ships that should be filled with Spanish treasure. So the English recuperated there for a little while and licked their wounds when they came across a native man in a canoe who was fishing. They spoke to this man, a man named Philippe, who spoke Spanish, so they were able to communicate with him. But Philippe didn't have any love for the Spanish, so Drake offered him a deal. He said that if Philippe could give them any information or perhaps guide them to any Spanish ships in the region, he would be paid handsomely, which is exactly what Philippe did. You see, there was a port that was even closer to where the English had anchored, not La Imperial, a place called Valparaiso, and there was a single ship in the harbor there. Not only was it unguarded, but it was on the Pacific coast of South America, a region that only Spanish ships sailed in. No sailors from England or France or Portugal ever sailed these waters before. So when the Golden Hind sailed into harbor, Well, it must have been weather-beaten and covered in barnacles and looked just terrible. But this ship at Valparaiso had no reason to suspect that it was anything other than a friendly ship. When the English put a boat in the water and rowed it over to the other ship, the men on board this Spanish vessel beat their drums and opened up a cask of wine to welcome their brothers on board. But the very first Englishman who climbed aboard, he smiled 
He drew his saber, he struck the ship's pilot with the hilt above his eye, and he screamed, Abajo, pero. Below, dog. The crew was locked below decks almost immediately. The Spanish had been caught completely unaware. This was one of the easiest prizes that Francis Drake was ever going to take in his entire career, and it was a pretty rich prize. While the English looted this vessel, they sent two boats ashore to loot the town nearby. Now, there wasn't all that much there. They took food and drink and probably took some of the local women, but then they ransacked the local church, where they took a chalice and some of the vestments there and other religious articles, which Francis Drake handed to the ship's pastor as something of a joke, who laughed it off and then threw this papist paraphernalia overboard and into the ocean. Now, the Spanish vessel, it was called La Capitana, and they found chests of gold equaling somewhere in the realm of, well, there was recorded gold, about 25,000 pesos. And then, it was recorded later, a lot of gold that wasn't on the manifest, gold that probably equaled somewhere upwards of 200,000 pesos. They took that gold, and they took the wine, but then Francis Drake, searching the captain's cabin, found a treasure that was so valuable that he wound up presenting it to the queen upon returning home. It was a series of charts that detailed the ports on the Pacific coast, as well as the shipping lanes that they used frequently, and sailing instructions for any Spanish captains to get to all of the ports. It was a wealth of information that Francis Drake was going to use for the rest of his voyage to his benefit and to the benefit of everyone on board. He took this information, as well as the pilot of La Capitana, a man named Griego. He was able to translate and read all of these Spanish shipping charts. Then they even took the ship itself. Their single ship had finally become a small fleet again. Drake sailed back to the small bay and let Philippe free, paying him pretty handsomely for his help. It was something that he could definitely afford. You see, this had been a rich haul, and the men were finally content on this voyage. It had been months at sea so far, taking very little in the way of Spanish gold or treasure. And now they had taken a pretty massive prize— they had all sorts of delicious food and wine and many comforts of the flesh. They were finally able to relax, and Francis Drake had some time to plan. See, he knew that it wasn't going to be this easy the entire voyage. The fleet was going to have to stay ahead of any Spanish messengers. If word got to the capital in the area, Lima, then there would definitely be a fleet sent out to defend these Spanish waters against this English incursion. Francis Drake had to stay on the move, and quickly, to avoid that happening. He also had to wait, however, just in case. If the Elizabeth or the Marigold was still in the region, they had agreed to meet at a certain rendezvous point, and he waited there for a few days, hoping to meet with them. However, while they waited, a mounted unit of 50 Spanish soldiers ambushed them. As they charged down the beach toward the English waiting there, they sent off a volley of shot. Only one man was hit, but he lay on the beach, bleeding, as the rest of the English retreated in their ships. The Spanish cut off his head and put it on a pike, riding up and down the beach, parading it as the English retreated in their boats. Francis Drake would attempt to retake the beach so that they could bury their headless comrade, but he was probably unsuccessful. So they retreated and found a small bay a little further north, far from any Spanish settlement. This territory was filled with hostile natives, but Drake made no moves inland. He stayed just on the beach. Now, the natives watched his encampment, but they didn't attack. The English really needed to make some repairs to the Golden Hind. They careened the ship. They were able to clean the hull of any barnacles and patch any holes in the hull. While they were doing this, they brought up all of the guns that were in the hold. There were a total of 18 on board, and they finally put them all in place. There were seven on either side below decks, and up top, there were four heavy bronze cannon. This was a ship that was armed to the teeth. It had many more guns on it than any of the Spanish ships in the region did. These waters had never seen anything like it before. They spent this time, as well, putting together a small pinnace that was on board the hind, one of those small ships that could be used for going up and down rivers and traveling between ships. But while they were constructing this and making repairs to the hind, there was a battle on land between another mounted Spanish cavalry unit and the natives who were standing guard on the English. 
the English could hear this battle taking place, and after it was over, the natives returned to their position to watch the English. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So Francis Drake realized that this land was too dangerous for any Spanish messengers to get through. Nobody was going to reach Lima overland. And the man that he had taken captive, that Spanish pilot, Griego, he assured Francis Drake that there were no other Spanish ships besides his in the region. So Drake and the English realized that no word had reached the Spanish in Lima of their actions. Francis Drake was still free to go about his business. For a while, they found only a few small villages. They took some food and water, they probably desecrated the church, and usually they took a guide that would lead them to their next stop for water and food. And then at one point, Francis Drake saw a light on the shore as they were anchored at night. He sent a small boat to investigate it, and what the men found was a campfire smoldering with a man sleeping next to it, and seven llamas that were standing there heavily laden with chests. When they opened them, they found that these seven chests contained bars and bars of silver. So the men loaded up their small boat and rowed back to the ship, the man who was sleeping never having woken up. I imagine it was something of a surprise when he did. The fleet continued north very quickly. Whenever they chanced upon a ship, they would seize it and take anything on board. They took a couple of small barks that had some silver on board, but mostly they were moving at breakneck speed. The men became aware that Francis Drake was racing towards Lima. He was trying to beat any word of their actions to the Spanish capital, where he thought he would be able to intercept the Spanish treasure fleet and once again steal all of King Philip's gold. But the men were growing restless. The coast was rich with villages and women and ships that probably had some treasure on them, and they really hadn't taken anything of any real note since they first entered the Pacific. So Francis Drake took that into account. They stopped at a port called Arica. It was a place famous for its gold and silver mines, even more well-known than Imperial. In the harbor, they fell upon another bark, and once again, this bark had some silver, but it really wasn't much. Then, when a larger, more prosperous-looking ship sailed into harbor, the men's hopes were raised, so they took that ship as well. Unfortunately, on board, they only found some linen and wine and a few other goods, which they took, but it really wasn't anything that they were happy with. And unfortunately, for such a small prize... Well, they had some misfortune. Another ship that was in port at Arica that didn't seem like it had anything worthwhile on board unfurled its sails and headed out of the port, heading north, which was exactly the direction that Francis Drake did not want any ships going. So the men stopped ransacking the vessels and headed back to the Golden Hind. They gave chase to the ship, trying to catch it. However, the ship was smaller and lighter than the hind was, so it was able to move just a little bit faster. So Francis Drake, though he chased it for days, was unable to capture it. He thought it likely that he would be able to capture the ship at the next port they came to. When he arrived, he found hordes of Spanish citizens on the shore, jeering at them, pointing at the English and laughing, and screaming insults. Apparently, a mere two hours before, a ship full of gold bullion truly a part of the Spanish treasure fleet, had left this harbor, hearing news that the English were coming. It was clear to Drake that news of his exploits was outpacing him, so he had to think fast. He told the men that instead of taking any ship that they found and seeing what was on board, they would have to start looking for information and choosing their targets much more carefully. 
Now, one of the next few ships they took did have some information. It had a captain that knew a lot about ships in the region and what they were carrying, and they found out that there were two ships worth taking. Now, one was in a port nearby, readying to leave to head to Panama. The other ship had already left port and was on its way to Panama, so Drake had a decision to make. Would it be the smarter move to just head to that port and take whatever was on that ship, or to hurry past it and catch the ship that was already on its way, fully laden with all the silver and gold they could carry? Francis Drake decided to play it safe and head to port to take that ship that was waiting to debark. When they took the ship, again, very easily, there was almost nothing on board of note. There were a couple of chests of silver, some silk and linen, which was a decent haul, but not what Francis Drake needed and not what the men were expecting. Unfortunately, while they were in port, the harbor master noticed that there was some activity going on aboard the Golden Hind, a ship that he had never seen before. So he went out to investigate what was happening. He rode his boat over to the hind, and when he started to climb aboard, he saw a musket barrel shoved in his face, and he fell back into his boat and began rowing away. Francis Drake ordered his men to work faster. They had to unload the ship and get out of the harbor as soon as possible. But before they were done, another ship sailed into port, almost blocking Francis Drake and the hind in. So Francis Drake had his ships tack about and opened fire on the newcomer, a ship called the San Cristobal. Now, the San Cristobal fired back. They traded volleys for some time, but Francis Drake was able to move. Unfortunately, he saw that on shore, the militia was being raised, and ships in the harbor were getting ready to chase after him. So Francis Drake had to move quickly. Finally, the wind filled their sails, and they were able to leave the harbor, leaving all these other ships behind for the time being. Now, Drake had two priorities. First was escape these ships and the militia that were going to be tailing them, but second was to catch that other ship the ship that had already left port that was going to be filled with all sorts of riches and treasure. This ship was known to them. It was called the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, nicknamed affectionately by its crew the Cacafuego. You might remember me mentioning this ship in one of our first episodes. Translated into English, it's the Shitfire. The Cacafuego was a merchant vessel. It had its hold filled with heavy bars and minted coins of silver and gold, so it was not going to be moving very quickly. Francis Drake, if he moved, would definitely be able to overtake her, which is what he attempted to do. He let his men know that the first person that saw the Cacafuego on the horizon would be given a gift of gold, and they set out in chase. Not only in chase, but also trying to outrun the other ships that were tailing him, attempting to catch Francis Drake's ship. While in pursuit, Francis Drake took another Spanish vessel that had something around 24,000 pesos worth of gold on board. And for a night or so, Francis Drake considered adding this ship to his fleet. He saw the kind of guns it had aboard, the shape of its sails, and thought that it might make a decent addition, but he decided to abandon that ship, and then, taking both ships' guns, he left the other Spanish ship that he had collected as well. He set them adrift and put all of the cargo on board the Golden Hind. He needed as much speed and as much firepower as he was able to manage. So, back down to a single ship, Francis Drake set out to catch the Cacafuego. He had learned, taking that Spanish ship, that it was only a mere two days ahead. He was very close to catching it. And on March 1st, John Drake spotted the Cacafuego's sails on the horizon. He did get that golden reward, but Francis Drake had some planning to do. Now, the Golden Hind was a much faster ship than the Cacafuego. With its sails unfurled and full of wind, it moved much faster than the Spanish ship. That was good if he was trying to catch up to it. However, he needed to slow down and come up alongside the Spanish vessel. Now, if he did so by furling his sails, the Spanish vessel would become suspicious and flee, which, doing so, would probably lose Francis Drake. So he needed a way that he could slow down while not appearing to do so. He ordered a number of jugs filled with water and tied to anchor cables, and then thrown astern. They dragged behind his ship, unseen by the Cacafuego, but slowing him down enough that though his sails were entirely unfurled, it appeared that he was moving slower and slower. The Golden Hind came up alongside the Cacafuego, and its captain, a man named San Juan de Anton, called out to the English ship. At first, he asked for the captain's name and the name of the vessel. And a man on board gave a false Spanish name, but the man who was captain of the Cacafuego had never heard of this and was deeply suspicious. So he called out that the other ship should strike its sails in the name of King Philip. And there was a pause. But then a reply came. Strike your sails in the name of the Queen of England. So De Anton was stunned. 
He knew that these men were no friends of his, and he replied, English, I order you strike your sails. And Drake replied to him, Come and do it yourself. Then the Golden Hind opened fire. The very first volley took out the mizzenmast of the Cacafuego. There was a hail of musket shot, cannon fire, and arrows raining down upon the Cacafuego. Drake himself tells this tale the best. Quote, what seemed to be about sixty harquebuses were shot, followed by many arrows which struck the side of the ship, and chain balls that from a heavy piece of ordnance carried away the mizzen and sent it to the sea with its sail and lanteen yard. After this, the English shot another great gun, shouting again, Strike sail! And immediately a pinnace laid around port until forty archers climbed up the channels of the shrouds and entered the ship, while at the opposite side the English ship was laid aboard. It was thus that they forced San Juan's ship to surrender. They seized him and carried him to the English ship where he saw the corsair Francis Drake, who was removing his helmet and coat of mail. Drake embraced him, saying, Have patience, for such is the usage of war, and immediately ordered him to be locked up in the cabin in the poop. End quote. It was the greatest prize that Francis Drake had taken on this voyage to date. The hold was full of victuals that the ships needed, delicious things such as fruits, wine, and rum. They also found, quote, a certain quantity of jewels and precious stones, 13 chests of reels of plate, 80 pounds weight in gold, 26 tons of uncoined silver, two very fair gilt silver drinking bowls, and the like trifles valued in all about 360,000 pesos, end quote. This equals, translated to modern dollars, almost $50 million on a single ship. This was the prize that Francis Drake had been looking for. It was clear to Drake, as well as the other Englishmen on the voyage, that they no longer had the free reign that they had had previously. After taking this ship such a rich haul, the Spanish would be out for them in force, so they had to move. They unloaded nearly all of the treasure onto the Golden Hind, and they began discussing with the Spaniards what their plans were. If you think back to last week's episode, Francis Drake, in that private, slightly burned document, was told that he should return the same way that he came. That would be going back down south, all the way to the Strait of Magellan, through it, and then up the coast of Brazil, and back across the Atlantic Ocean. That was what Francis Drake told the men on board the Cacafuego that he planned to do. He let them know that his plans were to set them free, and then leave Spanish territory forever. Then he held a meeting with two members of his crew, the Portuguese pilot Da Silva and the Spaniard Griego, telling them that he had lied to the Spaniards on the other ship and that he intended, in fact, to go back via Acapulco. Then, the very next day, he released Griego and Da Silva. They told the Spanish, when they were picked up, that Francis Drake had lied to them, that he was, in fact, going via Acapulco instead of directly down south, so the Spanish were thrown off the scent and headed back down south. Now what Drake had told both, the Spaniards and the two members of his crew, were lies. He didn't intend to go back south at all. After telling them this information, he headed north a little bit up the coast, stopping in Panama and Guatemala for water, taking a couple more vessels, but then he headed out to sea, due west, and then turned course, heading directly north. He sailed north past modern-day Guatemala, past modern-day Mexico, past the entirety of the Spanish Main. He sailed north until he had left behind what any European would consider civilization into the wilderness. He continued sailing north, further and further, until fog enshrouded his ship. Then, finally, he made landfall. Now, it's almost impossible to know where Francis Drake made landfall, but there are a lot of theories surrounding it. In California, there's a place known as Drake's Bay, where for many years it's been assumed Drake made his landfall, and in a lot of ways it fits the descriptions that Drake left behind. However, a wealth of new information has come to us in the last few years that put this theory into question. After this theory was no longer seen as historic fact, the floodgates opened and people all along the western seaboard of North America began claiming that they had information that they knew exactly where Francis Drake made landfall. It seems, though, that the best theory actually comes near Vancouver in Canada. Wherever it was precisely, we can assume from how Drake described the area that they landed somewhere in the Pacific Northwest on June 5th, 1579. 
Now, there was a tribe of natives that lived in the area that met Drake with a very warm reception. This was probably this tribe's first encounter ever with white Europeans. So the two groups traded, and the natives examined the newcomers in their strange clothes and armor. They saw the ship that these men had come on, and they wondered at it. These were all highly strange oddities to the native people. Their king even came down to the beach to meet the English, and he held a ceremony. Drake recorded this account. He said, quote, It was their intent, the king himself, with all the singing a song, set a crown upon his head, enriched his neck with all their chains, and offering unto him many other things, honored him by the name Hyo. Because they were not only visited of the gods, for so they still judged us to be, but the great and chief god was now become their god, their king and patron. End quote. The man that the king gave the crown was Francis Drake. They believed him to be a king of the gods. And Drake held a ceremony directly after this, holding aloft a scepter that the king of the native tribe had given him, and claiming that these people were now watched over by his patron, the Queen Elizabeth. This might seem to people with modern sensibilities like something that's got to be nothing but historical propaganda by Francis Drake. However, it's actually quite likely that these people did believe that the visiting English were gods. This is something that really happens all throughout history. No matter who you are on this planet, it's almost guaranteed that somewhere in your history you have ancestors who met a technologically superior civilization and built myths around them. Whether it be meeting gods or angels or even aliens, most cultures and most peoples have gone through this exact same experience. You see this with tribes that the Egyptians encountered, with tribes that the Roman Empire encountered and the Persians encountered. You see this all the way throughout history, up until even as recently as World War II. There were tribes who lived on islands in the Pacific Theater that had never seen anybody who was not a member of their community until Allied forces came to their island and built airstrips. Now that these communities are finally beginning to move out and make contact with the rest of the world, we're seeing that they in fact built altars and almost a religious mythology around these gods that visited them. They've built airstrips and planes out of the rudimentary materials that they have available to them. So I don't think it's inaccurate or culturally degrading to claim that these people probably do believe that they are meeting the gods at this time. But as opposed to what the Spanish did when the natives believed that they were gods, Francis Drake didn't enslave these people. He treated with them and traded with them and even learned some of their language. And there are, in fact, members of native tribes in the Pacific Northwest that claim that they still have myths of white-skinned deities coming to visit them long in their past. And many of these tribes believe that this was, in fact, a visitation by Francis Drake in the 1500s. So Francis Drake and the English stayed there for some time. They even named this place. They named it Nova Albion, which is, in the Latin, New England. It was really England's first colony on North America, although nothing was to ever come of it. After several months of preparation, Francis Drake left Nova Albion. He probably traveled for a little while further north. It's clear from the latitude and longitude that they did travel further north than where we believe Nova Albion to be. It's likely that in that private meeting with Queen Elizabeth, he had actually been given orders to travel as far north as he felt he safely could to search for the western end of the Northwest Passage. While Francis Drake was on this voyage, that other explorer, Martin Frobisher, was exploring the eastern coast of North America, looking for the Northwest Passage. It was believed that if they could find the two ends, they could prove that there was, in fact, a Northwest Passage and a way for England to get to the Indies and the riches of Asia. However, of course, Francis Drake didn't find anything. He found several inlets and mapped this area fairly thoroughly, but nothing that proved to him that there was a Northwest Passage. With his holds full of Spanish riches, fresh food and water, they traveled west, out into the Pacific Ocean. However, it took a full 68 days for them to make the crossing before they encountered an island that actually parallels once again Ferdinand Magellan's voyage. They made their first landfall on September 30th. It was a small Micronesian island with a tribe that greeted the English warmly. However, that warm greeting was somewhat misleading to the English. You see, this tribe had a custom of communal ownership of all their property. Nothing belonged to any one person, and they would share freely whatever they needed with whomever needed it. 
If you needed a tool or an article of clothing or whatever it may be, you could go take that from whoever had it at the time and there would be no ill will or retribution at all. And they could do the same to you. Anything that was in your possession at the time, they could come and use freely. When Ferdinand Magellan made this landfall, he and his men were stunned by this. They didn't realize that these men were merely trying to share, as was their custom. They saw this island as a group of men that were stealing from them. Anything that these people wanted, they would just take off the person of the European, who saw this as an act of theft. And they attacked in retribution, which was exactly what happened when Francis Drake made landfall. The natives, Francis Drake believed they wanted to trade, but instead they just began taking whatever caught their eye, whatever they were curious about and wanted to see how it worked. And of course, one of the Englishmen shot some of the natives, and the natives attacked in kind. There was a short battle, but the English escaped with most of their possessions intact, and Francis Drake called this island the Island of Thieves. This was, in fact, the same island where Ferdinand Magellan was killed. These were the ancestors of the same native peoples that assassinated him on their beach. They stopped again in the Moluccas, what are called the Spice Islands, which is not something that was a big stop for Francis Drake, but it must have been significant to them on a psychological level. This was the place that all of the plans for England or any of the other European nations to make it to the Far East, this was where all of the riches that they desired came from. This is where cloves and cinnamon, certain types of peppers, and all of the spices that fetched such a high price in Europe came from. However, this late in the game, the Spanish were no longer really present in the Spice Islands, and while the Portuguese were still in this region of Southeast Asia, they were really truly hated and lived a somewhat defensive existence. They rarely left their compounds. Francis Drake, an Englishman, met with the sultan of the area, a man named Babu, and though he didn't really have the political authority... He went ahead and opened up diplomatic relations with this sultan. They began discussing how they would ally themselves, and Francis Drake even offered the sultan as many English ships as he needed to oust the Portuguese from their waters. The sultan, after receiving several gifts, gave Francis Drake and his men six tons of cloves, one of the most valued spices in all of the world. On top of all of the riches, the silver and gold, he had some of the most valuable cargo to date now in his hold. So Francis Drake headed further west, through the Indian Ocean. The rest of the voyage, well, aside from coming upon a reef that was very shallow and running aground, which nearly ended the voyage in its tracks, there was really very little else of note. In fact, there's very little else recorded. Aside from when they finally rounded the Cape of Good Hope in Africa, there's almost nothing. Despite the fact that there were many feats of navigation and seamanship that this crew could have recorded, they failed to. It seems that they must have been truly eager to get home. It wasn't until September 26th, 1580, when the record of a fisherman who was fishing the English Channel remembers that a worn and weather-beaten ship, heavily lilting, made its way into Plymouth Sound. The fisherman remembers a stocky, heavily bearded man with curly red hair leaning over the ship and asking him, Is Elizabeth still queen? The fisherman replied to him, Aye, and in fine health, too. The fisherman records that he saw that as something as a strange question for a stranger to ask him, who was on an English ship, speaking English, and flying the flag of St. George. Of course Elizabeth was still queen. But Francis Drake and his men had been away from home for almost three entire years. Drake was to find that that question was not ill-advised. The three years that he had been away had proved difficult for both the country of England and its queen, Elizabeth. In many ways, they were some of the most challenging that she ever faced. Now, Francis Drake was soon to meet with her, and in that meeting, he would discover that while Elizabeth was still queen, she and the nation desperately needed the help of Sir Francis Drake. And with that, the return of Francis Drake, I think that's a good place to leave off for this week. This voyage changed things in Europe. While Francis Drake's other expeditions to the Caribbean had worsened tensions, between England and Spain, this really showed the Spanish and the rest of the world what the English were capable of in a naval sense. And it changed the dynamic between all of the nations of Europe. Next week, we're going to look into what was happening in Europe during the first few voyages of Francis Drake, as well as on this very long circumnavigation of the globe. We're going to look at a lot of the political factors and some of the religious ones that are turning the burner up in Europe to a boiling point. Things are getting ready to explode and we're going to look at the factors that are going to lead to the greatest of Francis Drake and Queen Elizabeth's achievements. 
Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you enjoy it or the show, why not go on over and check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not go on over and check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. Over there, you can listen to any episode, you can leave a comment, or you can check out any of the supplemental information we've got. For this episode, we're definitely going to have some maps for you. We also have links to any of our other listening streaming services that you might be into, be that iTunes, TuneIn, or Podbean. We're on all three, and we would love it if you would go ahead and leave a comment and a review over there. That really helps get the podcast noticed. We've also got a new feature. Well, we've always accepted donations through PayPal. A listener who made a very kind comment on iTunes suggested I check out a service. It's called Patreon. It's a service that many of you may be familiar with, but I'm really still learning about and figuring out how it works. It appears that you are able to pledge your support for a certain period of time. You can, for some services, pledge your support, say, a few bucks a month, or for this show, you can pledge the suggested donation of a dollar every time an episode is released. What this does... It allows me to release many of those special episodes that I've been teasing you with without having a certain kind of membership for everyone that's involved. Your support can go ahead and get more content out there more quickly for everyone else that cares to listen. We've already had a couple of listeners who were kind enough to go on over and pledge their support. If anybody's interested, go on over and check it out, and I really appreciate anybody who chooses to support the podcast. It really helps keep us afloat. Whether you do that with a couple of bucks a month, or a very kind comment, or just suggesting the podcast to your friends, every little bit helps. Most importantly, though, thank you for listening.